God does not take people to be with him when they're young. He doesn't need another angel in heaven. It's really important. The reason is because if we don't settle that one, we'll end up not knowing what God's going to do next. If you who are evil wouldn't kill your child, why would God? If you are evil, wouldn't take somebody in their 40s. If you are evil, um, wouldn't give somebody cancer so that they can go to heaven and learn a lesson on earth and be a witness to others when they're 35. Why would God do it? The reality is that it's a mystery with sickness and death, but God's purpose is that everybody lives healthy lives and dies in their sleep at 85. Or maybe 90 or 105, I don't know. I believe also when we see heaven, we're going to say, why on earth didn't you take me earlier? So we're, we, we are a little confused, and I think we're going to find ourselves... What Paul said was, I, I long to die, but I won't die for your sake. I will live. And I, I just want to say that because God's character is consistent. He is good. He is kind. And he says, I will be with you in the midst of all the chaos of life. But life is chaotic because we live in a broken world where... Lots of people want to be God and lots of evil is done and lots of consequences are rolling out through all kinds of actions that are some of ours and often they're not. It's confusing. Does it make sense? We have to know the nature of God and God is good and he's kind and Jesus therefore says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Is there anything in Jesus' life that you read where he just killed people randomly? In fact, his disciples wanted to burn down the Samaritans because they didn't the Samaritans because they didn't want him to come into his village. And Jesus said, "No, you don't do that." Peter wanted to cut off somebody's ear because he was about to take Jesus, and Jesus healed that man. And he said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And that means that God says, "I don't take vengeance on people. I love people. I've come to give my life for people, and I've come to break the back of what has caused people to become so." imprisoned. That's the message of Easter. And I want to reflect this morning, just hopefully to to encourage you about uh, living in chaos and living in all kinds of weather patterns all the time and how the people around the crucifixion and resurrection were in that kind of stormy weather. That it wasn't easy and it wasn't predictable. And I You know, I keep saying sometimes we're trying to shrink wrap God into this predictable, tame little puppet. All he does, all we want him to do is keep me out of trouble and make my life happy. And it just, that God doesn't exist. Jesus is a a powerful God. And the, 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 the encouraging thing, too, is that God comes to where you are. You don't have to do 15 Hail Marys, or you don't have to memorize all of the scriptures, or you don't have to live a perfect life. For God to come to you. God is already with you. He's actually right with you right now. Because you're his idea. And he loves you whether you like it or not. He loves you before you even know he loves you. That's why we sometimes baptize children. Because God actually loves you before you know he exists. Somebody walked out of here last week really angry because we baptized a child. I respect the fact that people have different traditions. But the reality is, God loved you before you said yes to him. Just when you became aware, it doesn't mean it started then. I just clued into something. So the good news is that God meets you wherever you are. So he meets you where you are right now. You don't have to jump through any hoops to get 
to him because he comes to you. And the question is, what do I do when he comes to me and how do I know he's with me? The confusion of the cross with the friends and the family. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and when the Spirit came on him and said, this is my son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased, everything changed. Life wasn't normal after that. Jesus began to heal why did he heal? He, he demonstrated the presence of God on earth as in heaven. There is no sickness in heaven. There is no anxiety in heaven. There's no violence in heaven. There's no trouble in heaven. So he says, you can have the gifts of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness on earth as in heaven. The way is you're going to get those kind of gifts is from the inside out. You're not going to get it from the weather patterns. So when it's raining and you say, oh, I can't smile because it's raining... Well, let Jesus give you some sunshine on the inside and smile because otherwise your life and everybody else around you is going to be miserable. We've got to find a source of life that is not dependent on the circumstances around us or the people around us. Now, of course, we're not perfectly able to do that, but we can do it a lot more. We should be people, actually, who are never offended by anybody. I mean, why should you offend me? I am only offended when I am the center of attention. I'm only offended when my issues are front and center. They're the most important. But what happens if you can't offend me? I love Graham Cook said, you know, I, I don't have any enemies. What happens if I, you can't be my enemy? And somebody came up to him and said, well, I don't like you. You did this and that. And he said, you're my enemy. He says, no, you're not. And the guy, they had this big argument. And he said, well, I'm just choosing to be your friend. What happens if you can't be offended? Why? Because... I don't go to a place of offense. We just go to a place of what's happening here. And you can't know the living God without struggling with yourself. Because God is offensive. Why? Because he's bigger than I am. So he offends my paradigms. Do you understand that? If you're going to know God as real, he's going to challenge some of your paradigms. In other words, he's going to say, the way you're thinking right now doesn't actually line up. So we're going to have to work out how to change that. How do you change paradigms? How do you change the way you think? How do you change the world view? How do you change how you see God? It's really quite simple. You just ask questions. Why? Why? One of the biggest curses on our culture right now is we're so passive. And we don't ask questions to find answers. We, we, we sort of take defensive positions so quickly. And so we don't grow. We don't learn. We just sort of declare what we don't like. And if you look at what happened around the, 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 the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was totally confusing and offensive to his followers because his followers had thought they were following this guy who was going to liberate them into a whole new Israel. And their paradigm was, you're going to lead us into political freedom from the Romans who have oppressed us for hundreds of years. We don't even know what freedom feels like. And it's a violent culture. And Jesus says, well, I've got to die in order for you to live. And they have no clue what that means. Would you? I wouldn't know what he was talking about. And God didn't sit down through Jesus and explain it all to them. He couldn't. They were going to have to walk into a discovery of something that was going to take a long time. So wherever you are is a good place to be. Have you seen that film, uh, Heaven is for Real? Yeah, some of you. few of you? You know, heaven is for, for real is where this, kid, this little kid has this uh, experience of going to heaven when he, he's on the operating table. His father's a Lutheran or Baptist minister in the States. 
There's no paradigm of God being supernatural. And it's a, it's a good movie in the sense that it, you see the struggle of the, the boy who comes back and speaks about things he shouldn't know about, including the death of a little sister that nobody had told him about. And you see the struggle of a traditional Christian church and family trying to make sense of the supernatural, which is bizarre because they of all people should have actually been able to interpret it. But they didn't see God as being able to do what he did. They didn't see God as being able to go beyond what they understood. So this little boy came into this realm that made no sense, but he said, I had experienced heaven and this is what it felt like and looked like. And I think very often if you look at your own belief systems, you look at the way you look at life, it can be so boringly small. God is just a bunch of stories, but the real world is me surviving on my own. But what happens if it's not because of the resurrection? The disciples had to learn that. The three, three gardens, we could, I'm just running through this quickly. The three gardens in the Bible that are very important. The first garden, the first Adam walked with God. And he walked with God and he was created in God's image or half in God's image. And Adam and, and Adam and God were in the garden. And God said, this isn't, this isn't enough. You need Eve. Now, he didn't know what Eve looked like. And then he saw and he said, you're right. I do need her. Sometimes you don't know what you need until God reveals it. Some people say, it's just me and God. And I always go back to the Adam and Eve story and say, no, God actually doesn't like being with you on his own. You need somebody human. We need human beings around us to make ourselves, to enable that whole purpose of creation work. Because when Adam and Eve were present, they were created in God's image, male and female. In the first, in the first garden, God created Adam out of the dust and Eve out of the rib. In the second garden, Jesus, the second Adam, wrestles with God in Gethsemane because he says, I don't want... In the first garden, the storm clouds came. In the first garden, temptation came, disobedience came, and they were cast out of that garden. They were cast out of that place of intuitive, natural relationship with God. That's why none of us have an intuitive, natural relationship with God. It's something that has to be reclaimed. We bear witness in our spirits to the rebellion that went to God. In the second garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wrestled on our behalf as the second Adam to yield himself to death, which was the penalty for, for sin and rebellion. He, he, he took on himself that wrestling in order to break the back of death, break the curse over humanity, that there would be a revelation of God's love. And so in Gethsemane, Jesus wrestled. In the third garden, after the crucifixion, it's the empty tomb where Mary comes and bears witness to the fact that there's nobody in this tomb. It's also interesting that the first person who bore witness to the resurrection was Mary. In the first garden, God creates man. In the resurrection garden, God has a revelation for woman because they're equal in his sight. But the woman, uh, getting to how do you deal with the chaos, the woman, what intrigued me was uh, Luke speaks a number of times about these women who travel with Jesus from Galilee. And uh, I think in Luke 8... He says something about them. There are three or four of them. But they, they are women who have actually been set free. 
Also some women, Luke chapter 8 verse 2, the twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. It was a very influential position she was in. And Susanna and many others. And what is interesting is that uh, Jesus had met these women and no doubt other men, but these women who had been troubled, they were captive. They were captive to demonic spirits. They were actually unable to live in the way that God had for them. They didn't even know what that looked like. And Jesus actually set them free from that. And we don't know what it was. It could be depression. It could be all kinds of things. Sexuality. It could be many, many things. And Jesus broke the back of the thing that was imprisoning them. And what's their response? Their response was, we've just been touched by somebody who has set us free and I don't want to lose sight of him. Sometimes when you're trying to find God in the midst of chaos, we have to allow God to touch our lives where we are imprisoned. One of the things that happens a lot around here is that we plateau with God. We say, you can have this part of my life, but not that part of my life. I'd like, thank you, Jesus, you've forgiven my sins, but my lifestyle I don't want you to look at. And we have these kind of areas of our lives that we're not going to yield to God. And then we wonder why our lives aren't going anywhere and why our passion for Jesus is sort of awkward and our, and our relationships with each other is awkward. It's because there's an element of when we come to Jesus, he says, I want you to be free to be with me and me with you. No strings. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a, it's a, that's an ongoing journey for all of us. But those women had been touched by God and set free so that they were followers of Jesus. And and we we read that they also began to, out of their resources, supply the needs of, of Jesus financially. So the first thing to ask when you're looking at chaos and you're looking at where is God and all of that is just looking at where am I present for him. I agree with somebody who said, you know, we're always asking God for his presence. The quickest way to find God's presence is to be present. What does that mean? It just means be present. Here I am, Lord. And anything that rises up is what we're going to talk about. There are no things that you can't talk about. He loves you. You come into the presence of somebody who absolutely adores you. And it's interesting, we do this in the hospitals. We go, you know, you go for a checkup. Have you ever been for a checkup and said to the doctor, you can look, uh, you know, not from the waist up? Or you can look at this part of my body, but not that part of my body. I'm keeping that private. The doctor would say, you're going to psychiatric unit. I don't even go, I'll just go from the neck up because you're nuts. You don't go to the doctor and ask for an examination and only give him half an examination. That was a revelation. I never thought of that before. It was quite interesting. And the spiritually, we do that all the time. You can look at this arm. I've yielded this arm to Jesus. Now, why isn't my life working? Well, it, there's a lot left. And we go, to, we go to the doctor and say, I trust you. And we allow the doctors to do incredible things to us. Don't we? Some things we wouldn't even talk about here. <laughs> let alone exposed to anybody. And then when it comes to the growth in the spiritual world, it's pathetic. We can't even clip our nails. That's persecution. All of the physical is a template for the spiritual. So that word from Rosie via God, you know, get over yourself, is, Lord, here I am. Here I am. It's a good place to be. You're present with God when you say, here I am. 
What do you want to talk about today? Because God will lead you step by step into the fullness of life. He won't beat you up. He'll just lead you step by step. And sometimes you're clinging to things. You say, I don't want to let go of that. He says, okay, let me know when you will. Or sometimes he will actually, like with children, I won't let go of this. Do you want a chocolate? Yes, thank you. (laughs) Tricked you. God will do that with you too. He loves you. He's not trying to rip things away because he doesn't like you and he wants to cramp your style. You're already cramping your style. Your style is so cramped, it's pitiful to him. He goes, these people, they walk around with their gods and they think this is life. If they only knew. Then they keep complaining to me and asking me to change their lives, but they're carrying around so much stuff I can't get in. Because I have this conditional thing all the time. And those disciples were led through revelation in the midst of life. I mustn't get too sidetracked. So the women from Galilee, now we know who they are, they followed him to, Jesus, to, to Jerusalem. And they were at the crucifixion. All those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. They watched Jesus crucified, which is courageous. Lots of the people didn't watch Jesus crucified. They ran away. And they watched, in the best possible way, the man of their dreams beaten, tortured, and destroyed under the same people, the Romans, who had beaten and destroyed everybody else they knew and their whole world. And they said, nothing has changed. Discouragement is part of life as well. There are moments where everything you might believe in seems to be gone. And you just go, nothing is worth it. I know I've been there. Nothing. God is an absolute joke. If God is so powerful, then why does this happen? Why does my child die? Why am I paralyzed? Why can't I get free of this? Why is a huge, huge issue. And if you're a Christian and you come to me with a platitude that he loves me, I'll kick you and you will need to go to an operation because your platitudes don't help me at all. I need somebody to walk alongside me and begin to reveal to me, you know what, that's not God. And how is he going to reveal it? Because the way I'm going to walk alongside you is going to model acceptance even when you're broken and unacceptable. And you can't give away what you don't have. So if you haven't allowed God to screen your whole body, what you will give people is from the neck up, which will be words and words and ideas and information, and their hearts will not be fed. And they will continue to be broken. They'll continue to be judged. They'll continue to say, I can't go to church because I haven't got my act together. And they don't understand you come to church because you don't have your act together. God meets you before you have your act together because it's him who helps you put it together. And in the best possible way, this is meant to be the safest place on earth where everything, if everything falls apart, you still say, whoops, that didn't work. Let's try again rather than get out of here till you work it out. Life is a mess. It is confusing. But God is present in the midst of it all. And so these women who had followed from Galilee, they watched this man crucified and everything in their heads must have said, well, that's it. And sometimes when you're left with that's it, what do you do? You just do what you know you're meant to do. What do they do? They end up saying, well, let's go and see where they're burying him and we'll love him by putting spices, getting spices and preserving the body. So they follow, because Joseph of Arimathea is the next guy who comes on the scene. He is a man of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the ruling people in the Jewish Jewish, uh, structure. He was part of the, uh, the, the ruling class where they had actually said, sentence Jesus to death. 
And Joseph of Arimathea was one of us. What does that mean? It means Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. He was conscientious, but he was chicken. Because he discerned something about Jesus and he didn't have the courage to speak up. You can read between the lines. He hadn't assented to Jesus' crucifixion, but the chances are he hadn't said anything either. And if you stay silent, you agree. You can never wash your hands and say, I didn't say anything, therefore I'm innocent. If you do not do something, you're guilty by default. And Joseph felt guilty, I believe, by default. And he saw Jesus dying. And I think at that point he went, what can I do? And because God is faithful and he's good and he knows Joseph's heart, he says, Joseph, I know you, you were afraid. So was Peter. He didn't maybe have that conversation. But what did I, what, Peter I will restore and you I will restore. I'm, because I use life to reveal to you your need for a savior. When the things you say you can do but you don't do them because you're weak, I come to you in your weakness and your brokenness and I say, here I am. I'll restore you. Just like I took the demons out of those women in Galilee, I'll take the demon of fear out of you. Because nothing you do ultimately will cause me to reject you. But I'm going to show you that through the chaos of life. I'm going to meet you in the place where you're most failed, where you're most confused, where you're most broken. And so he meets Joseph. And Joseph starts saying, I have resources. I can provide a tomb for this man. Joseph doesn't know that he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that was written, recorded, embedded in the Jewish faith six to eight hundred years before Jesus was born. The detail of Jesus' life, death and resurrection in prophetic words is, is astounding. He will die among thieves, he will be buried amongst the rich. And Joseph was rich. And so they, they took him, he, he got a tomb. If you go to Jerusalem now, there are two tombs because obviously everything in Israel is screwed up. And human beings just are able to do that. We're just funny people. You go to Jesus' birthplace, you go down into a basement of a big church um, that, that has a big w- door at the front which is now bricked in so any person can go in because apparently people will ride in on their horses. Um, and then you go down, it's all gilded in silver and it's, it's very religious. And then you go to the place where Jesus is, you know, Golgotha, and it's in the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, which is, is a rock that you can't see. You just see a little bit of glass, and then you can see a rock and where the cross was meant to be. And then over there, not very far, probably at that door, is uh, the, t- the empty tomb. And around the side of the empty tomb is a little hole <laughs> where a Coptic monk is trying to sell you crucifixes. It's all funny. And you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and there's... The, there's seven lanterns over a slab where they said Jesus' body was laid and the seven lanterns are there because there's seven Coptic groups vying for authority in the Holy Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So this God who we worship who came to peace on earth, you want to see chaos, go to the place where he was crucified. And so the English found another tomb in the garden which is more peaceful than British and so that's apparently the real one. I'm joking, I couldn't care less. It's a nice place to have a service and remember it, but who knows. It's just everything is chaotic. Because we as humans take things and then we, you know, we all steal a little bit of gravel so they've got to put it in glass because otherwise everybody will take everything home and there's nothing left. So it's, it's like this becomes my trinket and this becomes... You know, we, we, we're just funny people. We're funny, 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 funny. 
But God is bigger than all of that. So I would still advocate going to Israel. Just be aware. It's all crazy and religious and dead. It's more fun being in the region than in the moments of those places. What the heck was all that about? Joseph and the rich tomb. Thank you. So they go to the tomb and they see where Joseph lays him and they roll the stone over. And you know that on the, on the, the next day the, the, the religious leaders had gone to, the, to, to Pilate and said, you remember there's a rumor that Jesus said he was going to rise to so put a guard on that tomb. So they sealed that tomb with the seal of uh, the, the ruler and then they put guards, the Roman guards there. And the Sabbath was the Saturday. So when you don't know what to do, do what you know what to do. Sometimes we try to be too spiritual. Those women didn't know what to do. So they watched where Jesus had been laid and they said, well, our tradition says we get spices. So that's what we can do. So they went and they got prepared their spices. It was, they honored the religious tradition. So on the Saturday they didn't, they didn't do anything because it was the Sabbath. And they said, the earliest we can go is in the morning on the Sunday, so which wasn't Sunday then, but we'll go then. And sometimes in following God and following Jesus, we have to just put our hand to whatever comes up at the moment. When I was coming out of my darkness for two years, it was God saying, trust me, build your house and I'll build you. Mow the lawn if you have to, just do something. And there's sometimes when you're terrified. I would get up in the middle of the night, I wouldn't know where it was, how it was going to roll out. And I'd go into a workshop just to calm the demons of panic because I was... You know, following God or beginning to find God sometimes for some of us is desperately frightening. But you also go, but where else am I going to go? And if you want to follow Jesus and never have those moments, I promise you, you'll never have a fun time following Jesus because you will end up just being protective of everything and critical of everything. You've got to be present for him. And you've got to say, here I am. And then you've just got to say, what do I need to do now? So those women... They get the spices and they go to the tomb and, the, and they get to that tomb and what happens? We've got all these spices. They don't go, Lord, you know, why didn't you tell us two days ago we didn't need to waste the money? When God gives you revelation, you couldn't care about the money. You couldn't care what has to drop. And they get to that tomb and the stone is rolled away and they have this revelation, he is not here. Well, somebody stole the body. Do you know all the discussions around the resurrection, evidence for the resurrection? Well, the empty tomb is one. It's the only place on earth where one of the founders of her faith, you go and visit an empty tomb because he's not there. You go into the garden tomb, you turn around and says he is written on the back. There's no memorial other than an empty tomb because he is not there. Well, the disciples stole the body. Well, the disciples stole the body. If the disciples stole the body, why would they have died for something they knew was a lie? Because almost all of them ended up getting persecuted and dying. So one of the compelling things about Jesus' life and death and resurrection is there's huge amounts of evidence that demands a verdict, which is a book, that can actually build a very compelling case for the resurrection to be a unique event. You can't prove the resurrection because it would have to be repeated. And science is dependent on repetition that doesn't know what revelation is. It doesn't deal well with one-off things. So you can't prove a virgin birth either, which makes it more believable. So if I was writing, so the disciples could have stolen the body, but then they would have actually probably, you know, eventually somebody would have split. It always happens. If, if a bunch of people are implicated in a crime that isn't true, eventually somebody's going to say, look, Peter is a little mad, but we actually got the body. I'll show you where it is. 
they would have broken ranks at some point under the pressure that was put on them in the early years of the church. Well then, if they didn't, why didn't the Roman soldiers took the body? The Roman soldiers who were on guard of that tomb uh, would have lost their lives. Their, their lives were at stake. If, they, if that body was gone, they would be killed. That was the price for their incompetence. Well, maybe the religious leaders stole the body because they wanted to just make sure that they had a handle on this guy, Jesus, who they were afraid of something else might happen. Well, if the religious leaders stole the body, the easiest thing for them to do to quell the rumors that Jesus had written would be to say, excuse me, the body's here. It would have been in their interest to say, here is the body that the disciples are deluded. <coughs> what else is there? can't remember. There's one that says, you know, Jesus never died. He swooned and he got out of the, he, he got out of the uh, grave and went to India. <laughs> I don't know why he would do that, but it's very difficult to understand a man who's actually been flogged 40 times, hasn't had food or drink or sleep, has been crucified with nails in his hands and his feet, can actually rise from a grave, leave his grave clothes intact, roll away a massive stone, and then appear to disciples and say, life is cool. Walk through walls in his resurrection. What I'm trying to say is that this resurrection event is unbelievable, but there's a lot of compelling evidence for the unbelievable. It doesn't have to be a jump into the dark, a leap of faith into the dark. It is actually very credible. So there are times when your life is in chaos and you go, I don't know what to do. And you say, a God who can actually rise from the dead under those circumstances is the same God who says, trust me, you can trust me in your circumstances because I'm able to do exceedingly more than you can imagine. How unbelievable is your God? If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then anything is possible. Jesus in his resurrection appearances over six weeks appeared to over 500 people. Paul talks about it in Corinthians. He walks through walls and he appears to his disciples. And maybe the most compelling evidence is the transformation of the lives of the disciples. That a guy like Peter, who was afraid and timid and was, was not able to follow through on what he said he would do, within six weeks was standing in a public arena, possibly uh, exposing himself to, to death and saying, this Jesus, uh, who you crucified, is alive and I bear testimony to him. And all of the disciples did that. And they eventually all, most of them except John possibly, went to, the, went to their deaths over 20, 30 years for what they had seen, witnessed and borne born out to be true for them. Furthermore, they began to actually experience the, the spirit of Jesus working through them, healing the sick and giving them wisdom which they didn't have. And they were doing all of that because Jesus basically rose from the dead to say that every human being is invited into that relationship where God is alive in you. So where does that leave us? All I'm trying to awaken you to this morning is the unbelievable nature of God, that these women who followed Jesus came to a place where the impossible seemed to be unfolding before them and they couldn't, what do they do with it? The women, when they saw the, 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 the empty tomb and the angels had said, he's not here, he's risen, they go back to the disciples the disciples, strangely enough, say, women, you're talking nonsense. Now, if you were fabricating the story in that culture, you would not have women see Jesus first. A woman's testimony in court was not admissible in that culture. 
So if you were going to rig this and you were going to write it for the, cons- the consumers of the day, you would not have a woman as a credible witness. And it's just the nature of God to go, but I would. So he reveals himself to women and they carry the, the message. And Peter, what does Peter do? Peter says, you're talking nonsense. And then he goes to see for himself. It's another clue. If you don't believe the testimony of somebody about Jesus, then go and find out for yourself. What happens too much among us is if I don't like what you're saying, I slam you and I do nothing about it myself. I live off what other people tell me. I make judgments over what they say, but I never make the effort to find out for myself. And guess what? You end up hardened of heart, bitter and twisted and very judgmental. And ultimately, you don't have the courage to actually work some stuff out. Church is full of people like that. And the clue here in the invitation is, you don't have to believe the woman or the man. It might sound like nonsense, but it might be God. So why don't you actually take the little trip to wherever you need to take and find out? And why don't you actually start from a place where actually you might be wrong? Who cares? The revelation is better than being right. Ask Paul. Get over yourself. That's the word, obviously, from the Lord for today. Get over yourself. If you want to see progress with God, just say, what's the next question you have to ask? Where do I need to go? Those women went from Galilee to Jerusalem to the cross to the grave, back home to the grave, and they got the revelation as they followed Jesus. You will get revelation too if you follow Jesus. Just what is the next thing you need to be asking? What is the stuff that you say is nonsense that might be true? What are you holding on to that's so exciting? Unless you're healing the sick and you're living a life full of joy and hope and power, you've got some traveling to do. Enjoy the journey. Start going, I don't know everything. And I'm very insecure and I hate the screening test. But God, I want to know you better because I want to know the fullness of your resurrection. So, I'm finishing with this. You know, what happens in, in the Bible is, is in Mark 9, uh, I won't look at it now, Mark 9:31. You know, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, you will, not, you will not understand all things, but you will remember these things and they will come back to you. And that's what the disciples learned. And in John 14, 15, 16, the Holy Spirit will be an advocate. He will teach you things that you don't yet know. The whole scripture is about a God who is continually working out revelation for us. Not new truths, but giving us understanding of old truths that we didn't see. And that's, why the, that's what the exciting thing is about Jesus, is that there's so much more than you could ask or imagine. There's so much more. So wherever you are here this morning, God goes, do you want to make the next trip with me? Do you want to make the next trip with me? Where, where would you... Would you let me take you to where I want you to be rather than where you want me to be? Because I want to take you into the best possible place. And as I take you into that best possible place, I want to release some things that are inhibiting you. The whole message of Easter and the crucifixion and the resurrection is totally, totally unbelievable. Which makes it so cool. Your heart will take you to places your, heart, your, your head cannot go. Let's stand. And I want to ask you as you're standing, you know, what what does God want to reveal to you? Where does he want to lead you? What's, What's rising up in you as we've talked this morning? 
Where are you in your relationship with him? I mean, if those women had stayed in Galilee, they would never have seen what they saw. They would have stayed in Galilee, they would have heard on hearsay, but they would have never entered into both the pain, the suffering, and the joy without making the journey. I mean, you can live off other people's testimonies, but you can't really grow under them. You can live off the adventures of others and the stories of others, but you will never come alive under them. You've got to make the journey yourself. And so the core of what I'm saying this morning is that God is a God who is unbelievable and he's able to do exceedingly more than we can ask or imagine. And there are times when we come to the tomb and the tomb is where we lay our stuff. That is as far as we can go. And God has a resurrection for us. And I think one of the things he wants to release among us this morning is resurrection faith. And so as you stand here, what is the tomb that you're aware of? In other words, the invitation this morning is, what is something that you've given up hope on or something that would need a miracle because God wants to meet you there? Where there's no way, you can't see any way through it and as far as you're concerned, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. Now that might be a physical affliction or it might be a circumstantial issue It might be all kinds of things. But if the God who revealed himself in Jesus could roll away a stone and could release resurrection, then he can release it for you. And you'll never ever get there by trying to work it out. So the invitation God says is, I led those women from Galilee to my cross and to resurrection. And I'll lead you. All you need to do is say, here I am, Lord. Lead me into all that you have for me, step by step. Those women actually were traveling in a group because they needed company, they needed encouragement, they needed one another. And I speak over you, if you're traveling isolated, if you're traveling solo, stop it. Because you will never make it. There are times when you're going to have to carry other people and they're going to have to carry you. It's just the way of life. And I speak over fear in the name of Jesus. Anyone who is living in fear, that you live in isolation because you're afraid, because you're afraid of what will happen if you say yes to God. I break that curse over you. It's a lie from the pit of hell in the name of Jesus. I release you into the promise of the Father that says I love you with an everlasting love. That resurrection wasn't just for history. It was to release something throughout history. So if you can, just in your heart, name something. And you'll know what it is. You don't have to dig around. God will show it to you. What is it that you want to name to him that is unbelievable, that would take a miracle and present it to him? And Father, I bless what is being presented to you right now. I speak over this congregation healing. We need some miracles in healing over cancer in this place. We need miracles over situations, over addiction in the name of Jesus. We call up faith to believe. Give to God whatever you need to give to Him. You don't have to do anything other than be present to Him. Holy Spirit, will you release faith? Will you release faith in our hearts right now to believe and to hope for what we don't yet see? Let faith rise up. Let faith rise up. Let faith rise up. It is not the end. 
God has resurrections for you that would absolutely blow your mind. But he wants you to make the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem to the tomb and back again. Whatever it needs to be. Just like every single disciple has to do. And Father, I pray that we will learn to love that journey. We will love the journey in the company of Jesus. What's the next question you have? What seems like nonsense to you? What's the next thing you can do in your journey with Jesus? Apart from being critical of me or somebody else. Decide you're going to stop being critical so that you can be defensive. Acknowledge that you're not Jesus Christ. You've got some work to do in your life. And with humility, start saying, Jesus, what's the next step for me? And I bless that, Father. I bless that in the name of Jesus. I just pray over these next weeks and months, there would be a flood of revelation of your love, of your resurrection power among us. And so I invite you to step into that journey. Because the Jesus who revealed himself to those women is the one who is here to reveal himself to us. So, Father, I just pray blessing on what you're doing. Healing on the bodies, minds, and spirits in this place. If there's any sickness, speak to it in the name of Jesus, releasing healing. If you need prayer for healing, go to the back of the church on, my, on your right and, and receive healing as we sing this last hymn. And as we sing this song, uh, you know, it's a joyful song, Oh, Happy Day. Step into the next thing God has for you. You might not even know what that is, but you are not the issue. God's faithfulness is. So step in because he knows what it is. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus.